0: Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend and that you're having a great start to your week. This episode, like all of our recent episodes, is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. They've got better than organic chicken, craft beef, all American-made shipped right to your front door. We love our friends at Good Ranchers. Check them out, goodranchers.com Allie for a great deal. All right, today we are talking to a, a new guest that we haven't had on before, but I've been following him and reading him for so long because he's so brilliant. His name is Josh Hammer. He is a Newsweek opinion editor. He's a syndicated columnist. He uh, is a fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation, and he really is adding so much to conservatism right now with his insight. We're going to be talking about a few different things today. We are going to be talking about uh, the hostage situation that occurred at a synagogue in Texas over the weekend and how the media is reacting to that and why it actually matters that the media doesn't Tell the Truth about the actual statistical threats that are posed against the Jewish community in the United States. We are also going to be talking about this big piece of voting legislation that you are hearing about so much. Joe Biden, our president, was in Georgia last week and basically said that if you do not support this voting legislation, then you are like a segregationist. You are like a supporter of Jim Crow. You are racist and a white supremacist. Of course, that's not very surprising. That's what Democrats like to do. If you don't support them, it is because you are an evil, vile person, not because you have any legitimate reason to disagree. But. We don't care what they have to say. The fact of the matter is, is that there are many legitimate reasons to take issue with this voting legislation that they are trying to push through the Senate by getting rid of the filibuster. Probably not going to happen. But we'll talk about what's actually in this bill and is democracy really at stake because of some of the voting laws that have been passed in places like Texas and Georgia. You can probably guess my answer, but we will explain that. And then we'll also hear from Josh. Like, what should a winning GOP, a Republican Party, really look like? What kind of conservatism should uh, Republican candidates and elected officials really be pushing? Is it economic policy? Is it culture war issues? Uh, What should that look like? We have some uncomfortable, I would say politically incorrect things to say, especially when we are talking about what happened at the synagogue. And um, it's never fun to talk about issues that have to do with race, that have to do with who is victimizing whom. Um, So just know walking into that, that some of the things that we're going to say are simply factual, but they are generally covered up by a lot of people in the media because they are politically incorrect um, things to say. This, everything that we were talking about on MLK Day, uh, there are a lot of nuances to MLK and his life and his theology and his philosophy. I really encourage you to listen to Albert Moeller's The Briefing. He really goes through the the spiritual lineage, the theological lineage of MLK, talks about the goods and the bads of his uh, philosophy, and I thought that that was very informative. I listened to that Um, This morning, we won't get into all of that, but there was a lot of good that MLK obviously brought to the United States in the civil rights era. His focus on love and forgiveness, on peaceful protests and uh, civil means to push back against actual, true injustice. I think a lot of his words, unfortunately, are co-opted by activists today to basically say we're facing the same problems that we were when MLK was fighting for civil rights. That is simply a historical nonsense that's not to say we don't have issues today but america today is not what it was in the 1960s we can give a lot of credit to the bravery the courage of mlk uh for that and um so we can't allow we can't allow people to either co-opt or to completely negate what MLK Jr. preached, the good things that he preached in the 1950s and 60s for really a new form of divisive racism that we are seeing through activists like Ibram X. Kennedy and Nicole Hannah-Jones and the purporters and the peddlers of critical race theory and um, other forms of racial division today. Uh, So just want to make a note on that. And I also want to say one more thing before we get into our conversation. Uh C4 was a law that passed. It was a bill that became a law um, that was passed in Canada that bans so-called conversion therapy. I will link the conversation that I had with a Canadian pastor from a couple weeks ago where we talk about that law, what it actually means, why it's not actually a ban on so-called conversion therapy, certainly not a ban on just, you know, barbaric electroshock therapy. It really is an infringement um, upon Christianity upon freedom of religion, upon free speech. And it truly is so dangerous and it's not going to end well for anyone there. Link that past episode. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because yesterday, um, I think it was about 4,000 pastors in the United States and Canada honored uh, Biblical Sexuality Sunday, where they simply preached what the Bible has to say about biblical sexuality. I will also link a past episode that I did um, about biblical marriage and the definition of gender and all of that. As I have said, I love alliterations and basically the summation of the biblical perspective on male and female and the holy matrimony of male and female is rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout scripture. It's repeated by Jesus himself in Matthew 19. It is. Uh, it is represented in, uh, it is representative, I should say, of, uh, of the gospel and in that way, or it is, sorry, it is representative of Christ in his church. And in that way is reflective of the gospel. So it is rooted in creation, reiterated throughout scripture, repeated by Jesus himself, representative of Christ in the church, as we see in Ephesians 5, and is therefore reflective of the gospel. So biblical marriage between male and female who are not interchangeable, but are actually uh, a fixed status that God created. We see it throughout scripture. It doesn't just have physical significance, but it also has spiritual and eternal significance. And therefore, to compromise on that is to compromise on a lot. The definition of male and female, the definition of marriage is a Genesis 1 issue. So it is foundational. And if you are not even willing as a Christian to stand up for Genesis 1, as I've said, I have a hard time believing you will long stand up for the much more controversial message of scripture, which is the gospel that can be summed up in John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That's far more controversial, far more scandalous than God made them male and female and defined marriage as a union between male and female. So let's stand strong there. Let's be a refuge of clarity and courage for a very confused and a chaotic world. I just wanted to mention all of that before we get started in this conversation with Josh. Again, before I get to it, let me do let me do one more thing. Let me introduce you to our first sponsor for the day. And that is Bambi. So I know a lot of you guys are small business owners. And if you've been running your business for any amount of time, you know, the HR issues can just burden you, they can exhaust you, they can literally kill your business. And you need help, you need help with compliance, you need help with onboarding terminations and all of that. But a salary for an HR manager can be around seventy five thousand dollars a year, and maybe you just can't afford that right now, which is understandable. That's a lot of money. You can't ignore those HR issues, so you still need uh, you still need help. That is. Uh, and you need help from Bambi, that's B-A-M-B-E-E. It was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager that will craft HR policy, maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. So you're saving so much money. From onboarding to terminations. they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel at any time. You can get your free HR audit today by going to Bambi.com slash Ali. That's B A M B E E.com slash Ali to schedule your free HR audit. Bambi.com slash Ali. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. First, in case there are a few people who may not know, can you tell us who you are and what you do?
1: I am the opinion, the opinion editor of Newsweek around the op ed section there. You can find our work every day at newsweek.com slash opinion. I Write a weekly syndicated column. I do a lot of like law school and college talks. I'm a lawyer by background. I, I used to live in Dallas. I was a Blaze contributor for a little while. So definitely missed those days, but always great to be back on air with you guys.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I originally asked you to come on to talk about this voting legislation, which we're going to talk about, but I've seen you also talk a lot about in the past few days uh, the hostage situation that occurred in Colleyville, Texas, where uh, a synagogue, people in the synagogue were held hostage by a man by the name of Malik Faisal Akram. I guess that's how you pronounce it. He's a 44-year-old British national, uh, presumably Muslim, who says that he was there holding people hostage to try to um, get his sister out of prison, who is in prison for trying to harm, I believe, FBI agents. Um, So tell us more about what went on there and tell us a little bit about the, the media reaction and how they've covered this.
1: Sure. So this, it's a tragic story, obviously. Thank God that everyone managed to escape what was a legitimate hostage crisis. Okay. So, you know, thank God that the FBI, SWAT, units, and everyone did what they had to do. So, there's there's so many elements of the story so like i just mentioned you know like you ali you know i used to live in the dallas area um you know connie burden um who's the former state senator from there in Colleyville in in northeastern tarrant county i believe it is in the fort worth area it's a dear friend of mine so i mean i know the area well i'm actually i'm actually friends with someone uh, named idamar geldman whose facebook post about this went viral he used mm-hmm. to be a a congregant in that synagogue um idamar ran for congress in the dallas fort worth area years ago um and in his Facebook post, this was kind of really kind of bone chilling stuff, actually. He said that the rabbi there, as is often the case with kind of these politically liberal, theologically non orthodox synagogues, the same way that kind of, uh, you know, Protestant Christianity has a problem with its theologically liberal sects, so do we in Judaism have a massive problem with our theological liberal sects. So Edomar Gelbin was talking about how the, the the rabbi at this reformed non-orthodox synagogue has said horrible things about Israel over the years. He has called it an apartheid state, oppressing Muslims. He has uh, he previously f- forbid his own congregants from concealed carrying in synagogue there. Wow. So, um, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ali, the very first time I, I, I when I saw this happen, uh, when I saw like the first headline, my very first thought was, this is probably a non-Orthodox synagogue, honestly, because in most kind of both theologically conservative and more politically conservative shuls, especially in a red state like Texas or where I live now in Florida, there's going to be armed security and or a lot of people carrying. So, um, you know, it seems like the, it's, he took the easiest target there. And the actual story here, it's very it, it's it's exactly what you said. It looks like it's a it, it's a British Pakistani national um, a muslim guy it's unclear whether the person that he's referring to as his sister is actually his biological sister or just his sister in islam sister in in faith or whatever but um the real story here i think that as we're going to play out over the next kind of 36 to 48 hours so the real story i think is going to start to focus on care the council on american islamic relations because care as recently as a month and a half ago was hosting a fundraiser. They were doing these prolific events trying to free this prisoner, this prisoner who this nutjob, who is now dead, went into a synagogue to try to take hostage Jews in order to free. So CARE, I think, you know, that's an organization of Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, all kind of the nutjobs in the squad and kind of, um, you know, the far left the Democratic Party, they kind of sycophant themselves to CARE. Uh-huh. CARE has a very long and inglorious history. It was, it was really founded, if you go back far enough, as a Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas operation on U.S. soil. So that's where I think the narrative is going to go here. But look, obviously, I mean, speaking very personally, Ali, you know, as as a Jew who goes to synagogue pretty much every week, I, I would never go to a, to a shul. I would never, ever, ever step foot in a synagogue unless there were A, armed security, and or B, I was concealed carrying. And I just hope that my fellow Jews pay attention and do the same thing.
0: Right. Now, something that's interesting in this is that the FBI is saying, and of course, the media has kind of echoed this, that there is no explicitly, um, explicitly anti-Semitic motive here, that this is something that just happened. It, it had nothing to do with the fact that this was a synagogue. Apparently, he was just going to hold anyone hostage. Are you buying that?
1: You know, it's a. It, it, it. This makes me so angry. It literally right. makes like my blood like like viscerally boil, right? So a, a friend of mine, um, a friend here in Miami, actually, a law school friend of mine, showed me a Google Maps, like a satellite image of where this shul is in Colleyville, Texas. The media and the fbi it's, it's unbelievable by the way that we're, we're conflating the mainstream media and the fbi but they deserve to be conflated at this point they are having us believe they are or they are suggesting they are putting out there the notion that this synagogue was in like a random strip mall where he could have gone into the walgreens he could have gone into the walmart he could have gone into like the indian or chinese restaurant or he could have he randomly wandered into a shul if you go on google maps and you look at where this synagogue is it's in a heavily residential neighborhood OK, it is not in a strip mall. It is not surrounded by anything. So what this man did, this British Pakistani national who very clearly is not particularly assimilated into our norms, our customs, literally what I think is going on here. OK, and I, and, and I think I'm probably pretty spot on on this. The culture in a lot of these kind of, um, you know, Islamist centric countries, um, you know, and her Ali, who grew up in Somalia, who grew up kind of inculcated in deep Deep anti-Semitism has spoken at great length about this. And a lot of these countries, they are really taught that like the Jews, you know, the elders of Zion, all these horrible kind of conspiracy theories really just control everything. And the nut who was in prison, this woman, Siddiqui, who he was attempting to free... Has basically, said that she has said, um, and, and some she was a neuroscientist at Brandeis University. I mean, this is someone who had some, some academic credentials to her name, but she has said that like the Jews control everything, the Jews are behind everything. So, what I think happened was this British Pakistani guy probably actually believes that the Jews really control everything. And I think he really he just went into a random synagogue to hold up a bunch of Jews, including the rabbi, obviously, and thought that he would use that as a bargaining chip so that someone, I guess in his mind, like literally like the council members of the elders of Zion, to go back to like these ridiculous conspiracy theories, would then free this Siddiqui terrorist behind bars. I, I, that yeah. is my best guess as to what his thought process was, honestly. Yeah. Um. It, 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 it's it's a remarkably stupid way to approach this, to put it mildly. Um, it, it is dripping with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but that is really the culture that I think a lot of these kind of Pakistani, Somali, whatever kind of uh, cultures grew up in, frankly.
0: Are you surprised at all that the media, some in the media, of course not all, seem to be more concerned with the potential of Islamophobia after this story than the blatant anti-Semitism that was actually expressed? Like we saw a, tele- uh, a tweet by The Telegraph saying, Breaking Man with English Accent holds rabbi and congregation hostage at Texas Synagogue, the FBI saying that this had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. You have a, a lot of outlets just describing him as a British man. To me, that seems to, of course, bury the lead. You're trying to hide the inconvenient fact that this person was not as is- Islamist extremist. Does that surprise you at all, or are you used to that? Look, I...
1: The media, after an event like this, is going to gaslight, okay? They're going to try to refocus the narrative back on white supremacy, back on white nationalism, back on kind of the Biden White House's war on domestic terrorism, January 6th. I mean, we know all the talking points, okay? We know the narrative that they're going to try desperately to get it back to here. I thought that what happened, excuse me, I thought what happened this time was particularly egregious. This was worse gaslighting than I think we've normally seen after an event like this. And I think that the median person kind of sees right through this. I mean, literally the front facing person for the FBI who was there kind of on the ground, I don't remember his name, but the guy who was kind of organizing all the various units, he had a press conference there or a a brief conference on Saturday night where he literally said, we are looking for the true motive still. Hmm. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like a, a Muslim Pakistani British national goes into a synagogue yelling about freeing this terrorist other Muslim woman who's behind bars who care held an event to try to free a month and a half ago in a synagogue, and we're trying to find the true motive here i I, I mean, this is vicious, malicious stuff, but to, to to your point, am I surprised? look, jew hatred is the oldest form of bigotry in the world, obviously, it goes back thousands and thousands of years. It is the bigotry that never has gone away, never will go away, and honestly like you know as jews like we have to deal with that fact i mean like we we just do right so like again like we, we we need armed security we need to get more comfortable training with firearms concealed carrying i've been saying all this stuff for years and years here but the notion that like the media and in this case the fbi would try to change a narrative. I mean, I mean, it's just very, it, it's it, it's malicious and it's vicious and it's also sad. I mean, if you look at kind of the FBI hate crime statistics in any given year, as far as religious based hate crimes go in a, in the United States, Jews comprise, I think it's about 55 to 60 percent of religiously based hate crimes. It's like five to six times more hate crimes than Muslims get in in the United States in every year. Obviously, the media would prefer to focus exclusively on the you know, Islam based hate crimes for various intersectional, nonsensical reasons. But I'm not surprised because, um, you know, uh, Jew hatred to this day is one of the last politically correct forms of bigotry in America. It really just is.
0: And you just hit on really the reason I think that a lot of people in the media focus on what they focus on and obfuscate what they try to obfuscate. And that is that intersectionality scale, which is totally irrational. But um, they will simultaneously conflate or they will just say that Jewish people are just white. So they have all of the privilege of basically your average WASP. But when it's convenient for them, they will use anti-Semitism to try to speak out against what we're told is the main enemy in America, the biggest that in America, and that is white supremacy. Uh, It's the same thing with the whole stop Asian hate hashtag that was going around last year. We were told that the real problem in the Asian community, the real enemy that they're fighting is white supremacy when the vast majority of the violent crimes that were committed against Asians that we were seeing statistically throughout the years, but in particular last year, we saw with our own eyes, they were not white people per, uh, perpetrating those crimes. But you're right when they say, when you say that it's one, it's intersectionality, which, like I said, is irrational, and two, it's gaslighting in order to advance their agenda of intersectionality. And it actually makes the world, I, I believe a more dangerous place because we are unwilling to call things as they are, people are too scared to tell the truth, and so they are unable to see threats as they are, which means that they can be unwilling in some cases to take the steps to try to protect themselves um against these kinds of um against these kinds of threats, don't you think
1: totally look um it does a huge disservice to people's ability to recognize the threats that are actually happening out there. Now, I, I I don't want to downplay obviously that there are, you know, there's an extremely, extremely small percentage of people in America who do have a, you know, vile white supremacist neo-Nazi beliefs. Okay. And the they, person who attacked and They the Chabad, do
0: not like they do not like Jews. It their their targets aren't just, you know, black and brown people, but they are viciously anti-Semitic as well.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the person who attacked the Chabad of Poway, California, outside San Diego, I think it was in April 2019, if I believe it was, uh, wow, well, almost three years ago now. That's crazy. I remember like that like it was yesterday. Um, he was a neo-Nazi. Um, the, you know, the person at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, I, I think, had uh, neo-Nazi or neo-Nazi-esque beliefs. But yeah, if you look at the majority of anti-Semitic attacks in America, it's actually not—it's—it's it's not coming from white people. It's just not. I mean, it's literally coming from people of color, uh, predominantly in the black community. This is a, this is a deeply non-politically correct thing to, that I'm about to say. But if you look at, at historic polls that trace the levels of kind of um, of viewpoints that kind of you know any mainstream Jewish organization, the ADL, whatever would consider it to be anti-Semitic, if you look at that, those beliefs do happen in a larger percentage from the black community than most communities in the United States. And, you know, we saw that, you know, uh, in Jersey City, New Jersey in December 2019, we're in a kosher supermarket. Um, you know, I think it was one or two people were killed from kind of a, a black Hebrew was Israelite, which is basically like a black nationalist terrorist organization. The machete attack in Muncie, New York later that same month was from like a, a similar kind of black nationalist type. Obviously, you can, you can go back to the early '90s with, with with the pogrom, the actual pogrom that Al Sharpton started in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, leading to the death of an Australian Jew named Yankel Rosenbaum, for which Al Sharpton to this day has literally never apologized for starting that literal pogrom. Mm-hmm. So, look, um, this is not a new thing. Um, you know, I I I think Jews who have been around long enough who have followed this know that the threat. More often than not, at a, at a basic statistical level, actually does happen from the Muslim community or the Black community. These are not kind of easy things to say, but they still must be said here. And again, that's not to that like play down the the, the abhorrent and vile neo Nazis, but a, a, as a basic percentage of who is actually committing these hate crimes. And to your point, Ali, by the way, those hate crimes really not just against Jews, but against Asians too. When we saw all those all those attacks against Asians in New York City, in particular, in the Bay Area in California really did not seem like it was all that many white people. I mean, I'm sure some obviously were doing terrible things, but a lot of the anecdotes that kind of were caught on camera really did seem to be blacks or sometimes perhaps Hispanics. These are, these are not easy things to say, but I mean, we kind of have to say it because you you need to recognize what you're facing and be ready to act on that.
0: Yeah, I, I it's not easy to say and no one really wants to talk about that. It'd be a lot easier not to talk about it. And of course, it's It's not saying anything about um, any innate characteristic in any group of people. And you're not painting with a broad brush. But statistically, the Bureau of Justice Statistics says the same thing about Asian Americans and who they are most likely to be murdered by if they are murdered. And that's actually very different from every other race in which. Uh, A white person is most likely to be killed by a white person. A black person is most likely to be killed by a black person. That's actually not true only for Asian Americans. Um, So just interesting. I do think it's important to 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 talk about and to note, even if it is super uncomfortable and it's something that I don't like to mention. But when you are told by the government that the biggest threat of violence, the biggest threat of, quote, domestic terrorism in the United States is white nationalism and white supremacy, I mean, knowing the things that we do know that we just talked about, I mean, we should that should cause people to take a step back and say, well, why? Then why are why are they saying that? Where are these threats coming from? How are they so pervasive? And yet we don't have a whole lot of anecdotes um, about those happening frequently. And your estimation, like what is the motivation um, behind Joe Biden, this administration, um, talking about the biggest threat to the United States? I'm not saying that it's not a threat, but the biggest threat to the United States we hear is white supremacist domestic terrorism. What is the motivation behind that when that just doesn't seem to be factual?
1: So it's a fantastic question. Look, I I, th- I think if I had to kind of armchair quarterback or maybe even kind of like armchair psychiatrist as to like what's really going on here, I think we're seeing kind of the intergenerational kind of downstream symptom, the downstream effect of decades and decades of thought in the American Academy and the Western Academy and the university at large. That is basically said that America and Western civilization, for that matter, is inherently kind of racist, colonialist. Obviously, kind of you know, the, we you know, you and I both both know the narrative, right? I mean, these white European colonialists came there, you know, they conquered Squanto and the Indians, you know, um, you know, all, all, every person of color was subjugated. So that I think ultimately is kind of the narrative here. Obviously, that's a large part of what's going on with. Um, 1619 project from the New York Times in particular here that's very much a part of this narrative so I think in kind of a, a at a full, full philosophical level what Biden is kind of implicitly doing maybe not explicitly on database but what he what, but the sentiment that he's implicitly channeling is he's basically trying to say kind of mea culpa he's trying to say like my bad as a white person like I, I like my people and again this is you know this is me trying to imitate him this is not like what I think But he's basically trying to say, my bad, you know, my people, the white people have kind of come here. They've invaded. They've conquered this country here. And now I recognize that we are to blame. So, let you know, let all the, you know, intersectional Olympics, you know, um, the the people of color of all various stripes do your thing. Try to have your country back on the margins. I, I think a kind of a broader kind of higher level. That's probably what's going on here. Obviously, a kind of a narrower level, a kind of a bread and butter, crass tactics of, of of modern 2022 politics level. I think what's happening here is the Democratic Party obviously knows that it is hemorrhaging voters very badly um, with working class whites in particular that obviously has kind of become the, the voting base, the crux of the voting base of the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party recognizes that it has to massively kind of drive huge turnouts, um, among the Black community, um, among the Hispanic community, although obviously the polls show the Hispanic community is uh, much more split nowadays than they were just a couple of years ago or so, but I think I, I think the thought is that like you have to kind of just appeal. You have to kind of just throw kind of carrots out there to all the various kind of intersectional groups to drive out margins at the polls, because Democrats know that with their crazy kind of woke nonsense, not to mention some of their like insane, you know, bread and butter kind of fiscal taxation policies, they are really just kind of losing white Americans at the polls at a very basic level, I think.
0: Okay, I want to take a quick break from that conversation to take a moment to thank Patriot Mobile for their support. We love this sponsor. We love what they're doing. I am proud to partner with Patriot Mobile because they are America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. And I want you to partner with them as well because they offer an amazing, they offer an amazing service. And also you don't have to worry about them taking your money and supporting causes that are then fighting against the rights that you hold dear, like your First Amendment rights and the right to life they are going to support organizations and causes that you hold dear they also offer broad nationwide coverage they use the same towers as the major carriers so you get the same great nationwide coverage plus the peace of mind that your money like I said, isn't supporting the causes, the organizations that are directly opposed to the things that you value. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget and their 100% U.S.-based customer support team provides exceptional customer support. Patriot Mobile shares your values and supports organizations fighting for religious freedom, constitutional rights, sanctity of life, and of course, they support our veterans and our first responders. So go to patriotmobile.com slash Allie or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with the offer code Allie. Veterans and first responders save even more. So make the switch today. PatriotMobile.com slash Alley. PatriotMobile.com slash Alley. Speaking of trying to, let's see, I'm trying to think of the transition. Speaking of trying to gain power through dishonest means, let's talk about this voting legislation. Let's transition into that subject. Um, Speaking, I guess, of all the racial things that we were just talking about, Joe Biden, and I think we have the clip to play out. Joe Biden uh, gave a speech, a scandalous speech in Georgia, basically saying, if you don't support Democrats voting legislation, then you are a racist like Bull Connor. So let's play that if we have it. Do you want to be the side on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be in the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide. All right. So that was pretty stunning to me. And apparently it was stunning to a lot of Democrats. They were trying to kind of walk it back. Jinsaki was saying, oh, that's not really what he was saying. Um, is that true? Is it true that. Uh, opposition to this voting legislation is opposition to black Americans being able to vote.
1: I I mean, you, Ali, you and I both know that the answer to that is obviously no. Um, You know, the word for this is very straightforward. The word for this is demagoguery. Okay, Um, a demagogue kind of going back to Plato and Aristotle and kind of the Greeks who, who originated this term, it refers to demigod, the root there is demos, the people. It refers to someone who kind of, it's a political figure who rises up by stirring the passions of the people, trying to rile them up. Um, oftentimes at their very worst, trying to kind of put them against themselves and pit them against themselves. This was Joe Biden's probably most demagogic speech to date. And already in his one year in the Oval Office, there was a large sample size there to choose from. He has had many demagogic speeches about the so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated and kind of pitting the vaccinated against the unvaccinated. So there's there's a lot to choose from there. But this was his this was demagoguery at its very worst. So, look, what happened as far as voting laws are concerned here in the year 2020, obviously, um, you know, back when COVID was. You know, at its uh, at its fiercest, where we when we really didn't know uh, quite how serious or, but as the case maybe with Omicron, non-serious the virus actually might be, when everyone was locked down, all these states kind of unilaterally, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them unilaterally changed their voting laws, oftentimes actually via unconstitutional means. The Constitution is actually quite clear that if a state wants to change kind of the times places manners and regulations of its voting uh, regime of its voting laws that must happen through the legislature a lot of states Pennsylvania North Carolina and others actually passed them through executive fiat so shame on the supreme court for not having fixed that at the time it was it, it was flagrantly unconstitutional at the time But what they did so, kind of holding aside the law and focusing on the policy, what they were doing here is they were really trying to make kind of a one-off dispensation, an exception, like a one-time 2020 election exception. And again, hold aside whether that was even necessary. I think usually it was not. But they were trying to make one-time exceptions because of this – what we at the time thought was this novel once-a-century pandemic that kind of shut down all society. The Democrats' arguments – is that in states where we are trying just to return to the status quo ante of two years ago, of you know January, February 2020, just before COVID started, that returning to that status quo ante now makes you tantamount to Bull Connor, yeah. you know, and the fire hoses down in Montgomery, Alabama. That is literally their stance. This is it, it, it. Is just so shameful. I mean, like this is such an insult. Yeah. To the legacy, uh, you know, of, of Martin Luther King, of all the people who did march in Selma, Alabama, of all the people who did kind of fight against um, the horrific Jim Crow regime in in, in the Southern United States, it, it it it's really just galling stuff. I mean, it kind of it kind of reminds me of the same way. I mean, this you know this weekend here in Florida, Nikki Fried, who's running the Democratic yeah. primary and might challenge Ron DeSantis, you know, she compared Ron DeSantis to Hitler. I I, I mean, like this is such an insult to people, you know, who ha- who who have relatives who died in the Holocaust, the same way that what's happening with Joe Biden is an insult to people whose families you know, suffered in the Jim Crow, maybe died in some of these marches from vicious police officers. I mean, it, it is demagoguery at its very worst. And it's also just, it, it's flagrantly ahistorical as a basic matter of constitutional law, too. Voting in the United States is predominantly a state issue. That is kind of like a con law 101, bread and butter matter. Now, there are various constitutional amendments, um, specifically, I guess it would be the let's see, the 15th, the 19th, the 24th, and the 26th Amendments, are the four Amendments that kind of carve out kind of federal exceptions. But the point is, historically speaking, with the exception of like the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and those four Amendments, voting is really a state issue. It is up to the states to do this. So what's what's really happening here is it's a naked federal power grab. Is the Democrats recognizing that they are in deep, deep doo-doo, that they are going to get schlacked, This fall at the midterms. And they're trying to kind of effectuate a very quick power grab to put in policies that will get them slightly better or at least less bad at the polls. That's really what's actually going on here. It's deeply cynical, demagogic and shameful stuff.
0: And I want to get into some of the specifics in just one second, but I want to read a little bit of Nancy Pelosi's reaction to the speech when she was asked about it, going back to my point about Democrats kind of seem to be walking this back, which I think is actually rare. They usually just double down. But Nancy Pelosi said, nobody knows who Bill Connor is. You know, if we're going to make the case to say we're going to be with Martin Luther King or Bill Connor, who's that? And she probably doesn't realize the point that she's making, but that's actually exactly what I was thinking. The fact that most people don't know who Bill Connor is. Uh, Bull Connor is. Most people don't know the racist that he was contrasting to the civil rights heroes. That actually says a lot about our nation and the people that we lionized, the people that we have put up on a pedestal and made heroes. They're the civil rights leaders, not the racist. Those people have gone to the right. dustbin of history. Most people probably in his audience didn't even know who the racists were that he was listing. And yet we're supposed to believe, like you said, that ridiculous notion that if you just simply want the states to control their own elections, if you want to go back to pre-pandemic rules and regulations uh, about elections, then you are some. Um, awful segregationist and racist. It's just it's just absurd. Now, let's get into some specifics about this power grab. As you argued, they're trying to protect themselves from losing more elections. What exactly? I know there's a lot, but just a few things. What are some of the biggest things that are in this bill that are so dangerous?
1: Okay, so, there's, so th- as far as I'm aware, there's two kind of major pieces of federal legislation. There's um the Freedom to Vote Act, if I have the name correctly there, which would basically kind of federalize various regulations referring to kind of early voting and mail-in balloting and things like that. And then there's the John Lewis um, Advancement Act, again, if I have the, yeah. the name right there, yeah. which basically would kind of put in – so basically what happened there is in, in, in 2013 in the Shelby County versus Holder case at the Supreme Court, The Supreme Court basically threw out the so-called coverage formula from Section 4B of the 1965 Voting Rights Act because they basically said that Congress had not updated this um, at the time. I guess it was 48 years. It was basically a half century. And the way that the Voting Rights Act works, there are two major components there. But Section 4 basically has a so-called coverage formula. That relying on literally 1965 data, what Congress did was it said, like, if you are in a certain jurisdiction here, predominantly, obviously, in the South, I think, you know, some places like out in Arizona, but mostly really in kind of the old South, if you are in a certain jurisdiction that has a history of discriminating on voting rights, and I I don't want to downplay that, um, that. actually was totally ethic. legitimate yeah. like, of what that really happened, of course. But if you were in a certain jurisdiction here, of course, then in order to ch- make changes to your voting laws, to, 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 to your policies, you had to get federal preclearance from the Department of Justice. The issue is that they that may have a, a, and quite possibly was justified um, at the time due to the horror that was Jim Crow. But as a a basic matter of constitutional law, like I was explaining earlier, that kind of flips federalism on its face. Okay, voting rights, voting regimes really are historically kind of a state issue. And again, like there are various amendments. There is the Voting Rights Act that kind of make exceptions to that. But as a general rule, it kind of flips on its head federalism. So in 2013, the court basically said, okay, Congress has not updated this coverage formula in 48 years now. We're going to we're going to throw it out. So the John Lewis um, Advancement Act. Would basically seek to put in a new coverage formula in Section Four. The issue with that is twofold. One is that, again, you know, as horrible as Jim Crow was, and it was obviously horrible, we're now, you know, 55, 60 years after a- after the Voting Rights Act query whether we still need this extremely heavy-handed policy in place that kind of, is, from a common law 101 perspective, flips federalism on its face, especially when in the case of the Voting Rights Act, there's actually other kind of um, litigation avenues. There's Section 2, which is kind of a pre-enforcement mechanism, but not worth getting into. But the point is, period, whether we even need this. And I haven't actually looked into the granular data, but based on what I have read, it does seem like the Section 4 coverage formula the Democrats want to put back into this statute basically just copies and pastes more or less what was the case 55, 60 years ago. So um, the data does not support that. The data in today's day and age simply does not support the proposition that Georgia and Alabama and, and Mississippi, whatever, are discriminating on the basis of race at the polls any more than indiana minnesota whatever this is nonsensical stuff so it it, it is farcical on its face and it flips federalism the other legislation the freedom to vote act Um, Same thing. I mean like they're basically just trying to federalize elections. They're trying to make a national power grab here as to what under our constitutional order is quite emphatically and quite clearly a state issue. Um, A lot of this is probably unconstitutional on its face because again, historically speaking, we had to have those four amendments, the 15th, 19th, 24th, and 26th, in order to kind of take away from the states to the federal government, these kind of uh, voting rights mechanisms because the default, the default presumption is that voting is a state issue. So it's probably unconstitutional on its face. And second, again, we just don't need this. Like these policies were in place in 2020 as like a one off pandemic era exception to the norm. But as a basic matter of policy, you know, mass, mal- mass mail in balloting, early voting for 20, 30 days, whatever. These are bad policies on their face. I mean, early voting is problematic for any number of reasons that I've you know I've written about for years now. So they're bad policies and it's not, it's a facially unconstitutional power grab. These are state issues that are trying to federalize for sheer cynical purposes to drive out the numbers of the ballot box.
0: Yep. And not to mention that a lot of the provisions in the bill are very unpopular among the American people. Of course, if you ask people, are you for democracy? Are you for voting rights? The vast majority of people, of course, are going to say yes. But if you break it down, what's actually in this bill, for example, um, banning state photo vote or uh, Photo voter ID laws. Well, most people are going to be against that. There was a Pew research poll uh, that showed, I think it was upwards of seventy eight percent thereabouts um Americans who support voter ID laws. And like I said, in general, people want people who are qualified to have access to voting, of course, but, I do believe that most Americans also care about voter integrity and they can see just common sense tells us that there are some vulnerabilities in the election process if the rules and regulations don't make sense. And if they're not localized, every state is different. Their requirements should be different based on what the voters there want and what is actually needed. There's also a requirement for states to allow this is the the um, the main piece of legislation that we are hearing about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. But a requirement uh, that states to allow online voter registration not tied to an existing state record on any individual giving election uh, officials. Um, No time to verify the accuracy of the registration and the eligibility of the voter to anticipate the number of ballots and election workers needed at polling places. If you allow same day registration requires states to automatically register individuals to vote from state and federal databases. And so there's a lot in here that simply makes it seem like what they want is not just a federal power grab, but also to make it easy to cheat. And look, I'm not saying that voter fraud either is some big, rampant problem that is manipulating every election that we've had in the past. But again, I think common sense tells us that this would make it easier to take advantage of our system, to manipulate the voting process by a bad actor. Of course, this opens the door to illegal immigrants voting, which if you want to talk about true voter suppression, allowing non-citizens, especially illegal immigrants to vote, well, that waters down the voting power. Of Americans, Democrat or Republican, black, white, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. The more illegal immigrants or non citizens are allowed to vote, the less your vote counts as an American. That's true voter suppression. And yet they don't seem to care about care about that at all now what's the likelihood at this point since they're not abolishing the filibuster it doesn't it doesn't seem um and they don't have probably the votes to pass this what's the likelihood before the midterms that this gets through
1: well real quick i mean kind of just kind of emphasizing the point that, that you made ali um voter id in particular is remarkably popular among yeah. basically any subset of the population there has been so much polling on this for so long now, and majorities of every population subgroup, if I remember correctly, white, black, Hispanic, uh, you know, literally whatever kind of intersectional demographic, whatever, you know, rainbow kind of coalition that you want to carve out there, a majority supports voter ID because it is so commonsensical. I mean, the same way that you need an ID to get a prescription from the pharmacy, to walk into any government building, to get on an airplane, you need an ID to do so many basic things in life. You probably should need an ID to verify who you are before trying to alter the course of our democracy, before trying to alter the course of our republic, if we can keep it to kind of channel the Ben Franklin line from, you know, 250 years ago, whatever. So it, it the Democrats, you know, Stacey Abrams, Biden Harris, whoever is is on this side that voter ID equals Jim Crow is so far out of touch with the median voter of any kind of subgroup. They're basically also, as far as the polling that I've seen, they're way out of touch with even the median Democrat. So this is a pure pander play. And uh, again, to use the word that I used earlier, it, it really is kind of this demagogue fundamentally. But to your latter question, what are the odds that this pass is? I mean, the odds are you know basically zero at this point. I mean, now that kind of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are you know, admirably standing firm on the filibuster. And by the way, you know exactly what they're trying to do in the filibuster here. Um, the notion that they were trying to make on this like one off exception to kind of put in a voting rights loophole to the filibuster rule is totally nonsensical. That's not how this works. Uh, Obviously, once you make a one time exception, there'll be a second time exception, a third time exception. And they know that. And that's exactly because every piece
0: of legislation that they push is always what they say democracy is riding on. It's never just like, okay, this piece of legislation isn't that important. I mean, of course, it's ironic that while they are trying to upend democratic norms, um, they are saying that they are advancing the cause of democracy. But that's kind of what they do. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This is not an exception.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, it's not an exception at all. But I, as far as kind of making like an actual prediction, I mean, the odds that this passes muster before Republicans presumably retake the House and quite possibly the Senate this November are uh, effectively zero. Um, I mean, it's just not going to happen at this point. I mean, look, it's possible um, if Joe Biden really wants to go into like YOLO mode. I mean, it's possible mm-hmm. that he could that he could like purport to issue some kind of wildly unconstitutional executive order trying to change this um unilaterally. I mean, there's no chance that would pass, you know, Article three federal judiciary Court muster. Some court would enjoin that pretty quickly, but he could try if he gets frustrated enough just to kind of show his base that he's, you know, trying to do something to save our democracy. But as a, as a basic matter of kind of the legislative process, you know, it's quite clearly not getting past the Senate at this point,
0: yeah. It's just amazing how, how much we heard while Trump was in office that he was the demagogue and that democracy was at stake and that Trump was divisive, that he is trying to ignite some kind of civil war when we've seen, I mean, at least in my estimation, a lot more, not just uh, demagoguery in rhetorical form, but actual attempts at um Uh, actual movements that can be described as authoritarian. I won't go so far as to say that Biden is himself an authoritarian, but trying to, for example, put a moratorium on evictions through the CDC, despite what the Supreme Court said, constantly trying to subvert what the Supreme Court and the Constitution say about the policies that he wants to enact, that is far less democratic and far more authoritarian than, in my opinion, anything that Donald Trump did And yet they are, um, you know, positioning themselves as the guardians of democracy. And it's just uh, it makes me sad that some people fall for it. But I, I think you're right. I think most people don't. I think most most Americans see through this kind of stuff, this kind of propaganda. Okay, guys, last sponsor for the day, and that is CB Distillery. So maybe you have heard of friends or family members using CBD for pain, for anxiety, maybe even for epilepsy and you have been wondering, does it really work? Well, 90% of doctors apparently said their patients have used CBD to treat a health condition. So let me tell you about cbdistillery.com. With over 2 million customers, Distillery is the source that lots and lots of people trust. When patients tell their doctors that they use CBD for help with their health conditions, some of those conditions are lack of sleep. So you're not able to sleep. Maybe you struggle with insomnia. CBD has been found to help uh, to help people sleep better. 90% of CBD Distillery customers say they sleep better with CBD. If nagging discomfort is a problem, 80% of customers said CBD helps with discomfort after physical activity. And if you're looking for a little peace and calm these days, you would be wise to explore CBD. If you haven't discovered the power of CBD, you are missing out. Go to CBDistillery.com where you order online with no prescription required and Enter Allie, A-L-L-I-E for 20% off. Again, enter Allie for 20% off at cbdistillery.com. That's cbdistillery.com. And I'm sorry to my friends in, Ido- uh, in Idaho and in Iowa and South Dakota, but it is not available there. But for everyone else, go to cbdistillery.com, code Allie. Um, what do you think, just to kind of close us out, what do you think the Republican Party should be and do going into the midterms, going into even the next presidential election. Crazy that we're already starting to talk about that. But I've read a lot of your pieces recently on where you think the Republican Party can do better, what you think the conservative movement should look like. What do you think a winning GOP looks like, not just when they're running campaigns, but when they're actually governing?
1: Great questions. This is like this is like my favorite topic of the moment. Obviously, um, you know it's so fascinating. You know, Trump came in in 2016 like a wrecking ball, and he blew up so much. And as like as an overton window shifting mechanism, he was very useful and very helpful, obviously. But he didn't necessarily leave kind of a thorough kind of a through z kind of policy manual or, or you know a philosophical roadmap or anything in his place. So this is like it's, it's a very fun space to be in right now, and I you know I, I'm trying to do my little part to contribute to it. So. Look, my my basic thesis here, um, you know, I I definitely side with um, the so-called kind of common good conservatism camp, um, you know, I think what I would call the uh, national conservatism. And what I basically mean by that is it, it is a philosophy of governance, a philosophy of conservative governance. That recognizes that the time for kind of 19 era, 1980s kind of you know, Reagan Bush era bromides about how like the only thing we can do is slash taxes, cut regulations, free trade, open borders, this kind of excessive focus um, uh, uh, on neoliberal economics as an end unto itself has to stop. Okay. The current threats that are happening in the United States in the year 2022 are to an extent happening from big government. That's what we were just talking about, for sure. Okay, That's what we're talking about with the Biden administration's various excesses, administrative overreach, trying to carve out and change the filibuster. These are changes. But I think most fundamentally, the biggest issue that we on the right, that we as kind of sane Americans who just want to go to church or synagogue and you know live our lives on a free day-to-day basis without kind of you know, COVID hysteria without kind of illegal aliens kind of running amok without crimes and anarchy and BLM, Antifa looting in the streets. What we really face as a, as a basic threat is kind of the woke ideology. I think the woke ideology... And, and, and it's spread, and it, spread, it is spread through all the institutions of high society. It is there in big tech, they are censoring us, they are kind of kicking us off the town square. It is there all across the Fortune 500, all across World Capital, you know, Chris Rufo has done investigation after investigation kind of showing how every major corporation you know, is basically treating its employees to effectively hate white people um, and, and and hate conservative viewpoints. So it's happening across the corporations. It's happening across the big tech oligarchs. It's obviously happening on the American university campuses, where having so much as a vaguely right-of-center viewpoint gets you shut down, if not outright banned from polite society here. So in order to fight back against kind of the spread of this current threat, you know, whether it's, criti- again, critical race theory, um, you know, biological men competing in women's sports, this kind of crazy woke notion that has spread, which is fundamentally different from kind of the issues of, of oppressive taxation and whatnot that kind of motivated the conservative movement of 40, 50 years ago, it, ne- it necessarily requires an update to our policy manual and our actual approach to the art of politics. So. The kind of form of conservatism that I've been pushing a lot of my articles and speeches and whatnot is a much more what I would say muscular kind of hands on Mm -hmm. version that is not just willing to settle for just kind of slashing taxes and tweaking around the edges of kind of economic policy, but is really trying to get in there on the culture war that's going to fight the culture war with the aim of victory over our opponents that recognize that we are in a civilizational fight. The people that wanna tell us that women are men, that men are women, and that white people basically are racist due to the fact they were born white. That is an evil, toxic, and pernicious ideology. And we have to be willing to not just kind of plead live and let live, to kind of say like, let us do our thing in our own space. We have to actually put out there a substantive vision of what America is as a just society, grounded in the Constitution, the Declaration, our founding documents, and basically be unapologetic about that there. And we have to kind of actually wield the levers of power to institute that.
0: Yep, I agree with you. And I have been heartened, my husband and I both have been heartened to kind of see this push um, within conservatism. I mean, I, I, have been a fan for a long time of a lot of things that Ronald Reagan did, but I've also been able to look at his presidency and his actions objectively to see that his actions, the actions of George H.W. Bush also kind of got us in the position where we are with China um, and kind of the grand vision of globalizing liberal democracy. Uh, just doesn't seem to be in alignment with reality or even potential reality, in alignment with possibility. And the focus um, on only economic prosperity and tax cuts and corporate tax cuts and things like that well they do have their place and I do think that they can be important discussions to have in my opinion they come so far below the importance of the culture war that you were talking about and a lot of people like to brush the culture war off to the side that you know that's divisive you certainly have um libertarians tried to like redefine what it means to be based and to say, oh, no, we're not going to worry about those cultural moral issues. We're just going to worry about, you know, free market capitalism. I'm just not I'm just not there. I'm not saying that I don't care about free market capitalism. I just care so much more about the culture wars, because in my opinion, that's what's going to affect my kids the most. It's going to affect what they're learning, the kind of life that they can lead, what is seen as normal, what is seen as good and right and true. That to me is a much bigger battle, and I agree with you. I would like to see conservatives pushing that um, a lot more than they than they currently do. But I'm not sure that we have many elected officials who are willing to do that. What do you think?
1: The test case right now is Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin is, yeah. is kind of the test case for this because because he just won a he won a campaign in a light blue state, effectively running on this platform. I mean, he made obviously critical race theory. Kind of education kind of parental role over kind of woke educational bureaucrats that was his issue of all issues here so i th- i think you know what we've seen right out of the gate from governor Yunkin and his his attorney general you know his attorney general on, on day one when sworn in kind of fired the entire existing civil rights division in the attorney general's office in, in richmond virginia pretty pretty high energy stuff so yeah, that's going to be the test case there. I think. I think. We're, let's see what he does in office. Look, I mean, not to like show for my young governor, but I mean here in Florida, you know, I think Governor DeSantis has been a a, a pretty decent model of that here. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't. Look, I mean, look as as far as vaccine mandates, he has banned kind of private sector vaccine mandates. A lot of I think kind of more like libertarian leaning Republicans might say like, oh, let every business decide for itself. But again, that that mistakes the nature of the threat. The threat is not kind of like an individual free enterprise. Threat right now the threat yeah. is this is this ideology that allows people to subjugate the unvax to allow people to subjugate on the basis of biomedical tyranny exactly so uh, you know wh- wh- whether it's critical race theory again here um, uh, he's kind of been like a great example as, as, to, as to i think at a state level what that agenda can look like but personally i'm gonna be paying extremely close attention to what happens with glenn youngkin in virginia because he literally won a, a stunning victory in a light blue state, a state that Joe Biden won by, you know, I think it was like 11 or 12 points uh, in 2020. He won running on this platform. He, yeah. he he literally ran on a culture war platform. So, let's see what he does in office there. But right out of the gate, it's looking pretty good there.
0: Yeah, you know, I was obviously excited about his victory for a lot of reasons. I was also a little bit. I was a little bit wary just looking into his background. The Carlisle group is very liberal itself. I mean, it pushes the tenets of critical race theory very fiercely within its corporation. And so I, you know, I was like, you know what, maybe he just did what he had to to win. But when it comes to action, once he gets in, he's going to be far more moderate than Um, We want him to be as conservatives. But you're right. Right out the gate so far, he has taken a lot of bold action. And I I think it is completely fair to give credit to Ron DeSantis for kind of setting the standard um, of really what conservatives want their governance to look like. And when I look at so Kevin McCarthy, GOP leader in the House, he says that when Republicans regain the House, we'll get America on track by stopping the flow of drugs and human trafficking on our border. That's a good thing. I think that's great. Making it easier to start and grow a business in America. Also, great. Reestablishing America's energy independence. Great. Passing a parent's bill of rights. I think that's excellent. I would love a parent's bill of rights. But there are a lot of things missing there. There are a lot of things yeah. missing. I think one of the biggest things that conservatives are concerned about are these vaccine mandates and the biomedical tyranny that you just talked about. And I'm like, OK, did he just leave that off the list? Did they not care? Are they scared about that? I mean, what do you think is going on there?
1: So my good friend uh, and podcast co-host Rachel Bovard had a fantastic piece at The Federalist kind of explaining where she thought Ken McCarthy went off the rails in this talk, in, the, in this kind of talking points or, or bullet list here. And I think, you know, if I, I don't remember the exact phrase, but if I can kind of paraphrase what Rachel said. She said that Ken McCarthy was just reiterating kind of the GOP's talking points for her entire life. I mean, look, the, the parental Bill of Rights thing maybe it's like a little responsive to the critical race theory yeah. national phenomenon that's that's kind of getting a little closer to what glenn young can went on in, in the commonwealth of virginia but kevin mccarthy you know i look i mean i remember when kevin mccarthy was one of the gop quote unquote young guns i mean like there was they have this like they have this young guns program he didn't he like co-write a book if i recall with paul ryan and eric Cantor or, or, or it, it was the three of them that were, they had to co-wrote a book together they were on the cover a book together they kind of came up together right and you know, Paul Ryan, um, you know, not exactly kind of the front-facing spokesperson of the kind of conservatism that you and I are talking about, to put it mildly. I mean, he obviously is focused on an, um, the set of issues that I think you and I are talking about kind of putting to a second or tertiary concern there, this kind of economic policy, Wall Street Journal editorial board-style issue. So I don't think that Kevin McCarthy, in his core, kind of intuits where the base of the party is or where the movement kind of as a matter of policy or political philosophy, frankly, needs to go. I think think that that's what's happening here at at a higher, more abstract level. What I would encourage kind of the... Viewers of your podcast, to do is to check out what Governor DeSantis said in his State of the State address in Tallahassee last week here. Because he, it was a pretty kind of fulsome, you know, 35 to 45, maybe even a little longer, 50, 60 whatever minute speech, where he kind of went through all the line of issues, talking about a lot of the issues that it seems like really do kind of motivate conservatives more than kind of these stale 1980s style talking points that Kevin McCarthy's talking about. I mean, in his Speech last week, DeSantis talked about kind of the imperative to fight urban anarchy and and crime and looting and homelessness in the streets. He talked about kind of the need to kind of put like a, a a a right of action for someone who has been banned from big tech to kind of get that platform access back again. He obviously talked about his signature issue a lot, which is kind of COVID and the biomedical security state. So I, I would encourage the listeners or viewers to kind of go back to his address and kind of do like a little side-by-side comparison because I think it'll be quite telling. But Kevin McCarthy, uh, look, I've never, I, I've never met the guy. I, I don't pretend to know him, but I mean, he he he's never struck me as someone who is kind of a core Republican voter. I, I mean, you know, not to like play that card, but he is like from California. You kind of have to wonder, at least a little bit, whether he's mm-hmm. deeply in touch with kind of like the proverbial kind of like heartland, median American voter. But um, I, I, at a bare minimum, to give him like a a, a modicum of credit, the, look, the parental Bill of Rights thing is encouraging at least, but a lot of those other talking points are just, you know. I mean energy independence I mean look I want amer- I want America to be energy independent okay i mean I, I I pay a lot at the pump for gas like most Americans do these days, but i I mean come on, like that is just seriously not like a top five issue yeah. right now, and it's utterly it's ludicrous to suggest that it is
0: yeah, I'm in agreement with you, of course, while well, we've talked a lot about Ron Desantis, so if you had the choice between Ron DeSantis and Trump in a primary, who are you going for. <laughs>
1: Um, I'm obviously on Ron's team. I mean, I don't know if he's going to challenge Trump. Obviously, I, my guess yeah. is as good as yours. But um, if if that's the mano a mano matchup, I'm going to vote for Governor DeSantis.
0: Yeah, you know, I see a lot of people kind of going in that direction. We'll see. We'll see. It's going to be a very interesting couple of years as it has been. I mean, it's just been nonstop for the past several years and it's not slowing down anytime soon, which is why I'm very thankful for you and your voice. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate your insight.
1: Thanks so much, Al. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you.